It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt, and on this week's show. We've got two very special guests. Matt Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of The New European, is going to be along very shortly. I'm not going to spoil it, but he's, going to, he's got some pretty good news. You may have seen this in the media, but it's good news um, for, for you guys and for the readers of the TNE and for Matt as well. And then we're going to be joined by writer, broadcaster and sister, of course, of a very famous uh, politician, um, former universities minister, Joe Johnson. That's right. Rachel Johnson will be with us. She's written in this week's uh, print edition of The New European about her appearing on Celebrity Best Home Cook on BBC One. I'm sure you've all been tuning in across that's alongside um, Mary Berry. We will do the news as always still probably, you know, at least check the website because there is still lots of breaking news week to week. I know you like to come here for your news. But firstly, where the fuck have you been? Hello again, snowflakes. <laughs> Steve Anglesey, ladies and gentlemen, he's back. I am back, like <laughs> like like um, like Mitchell and Webb. I am back, 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 back. It's uh, been what a, lovely, what a lovely thing it is. The, it is um, it's fantastic to hear your voice on this podcast. The days Mr. are getting Anglesey. the days are getting longer. The snowdrops in my local park are coming out. There's not a lunatic in the White House anymore. Um, and I'm back on the New European podcast. And yes, and you know, there was, I'd like to say that there was an outpouring of grief and worry and concern when you just disappeared. Um, I, I would like to, to be able to say that. Yes. Um, but um, actually, um, <clears throat> we were very lucky in that Matt Withers, the man behind the scenes, and the lovely Cash Boyle, Boyle um, uh, stepped in and did an absolutely cracking job. So um thank you very much to them round of applause what but, a fantastic job it was yes yes, and, yes. Um, i think and, we'll be hearing more from reappear in the future absolutely cash um cash was much beloved and uh don't worry you'll be hearing more from cash i'm 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 absolutely certain uh, before matt arrives should we just quickly do a little bit of news because um i know we're both big film fans aren't we and it turns out yes. so is hat mancock Yes, he is. Yes, that's right. And I, I, the the thing that has the thing that really struck me this week in in a busy week of news was was Hat Mancock, who is basking in the the glory of actually getting something right for a change, which is the the the, the vaccine rollout. And he said that um, he said that Contagion, which you have seen but I have not seen, which is a film about a, a deadly viral pandemic, had given him the inspiration for the UK's um covid19 vaccine strategy 
Um, what happens in Contagion? Tell, uh, well, do you know what? People I, I, like me who've not seen it. I have seen it, but I think it might have been, and I think Hat might have even said the same thing. I think I saw this on a um, on a plane, and uh, and I think I may have had I've been indulging in uh. a few drinks. And I think then I may have also, I have definitely seen it because I've seen some of the scenes out of it this last year. I think then I might have confused it with that Dustin Hoffman film. I think it is Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak. Outbreak, yeah. Where uh, I think does, in that one, doesn't isn't there some kind of monkey involvement or something? There's a I'm monkey sure involved, yeah. There is a monkey involved. Um, like all the best films. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah. But which which bit in particular was it of that film that he? Has... Well, he said that it had impressed upon him the importance of of securing enough vaccines once vaccines had been approved. He needed to see um, that film, for... <laughs> which is not quite right, is it? Because we secured a load of vaccines well before the vaccines had even been um, approved. But um, but but that's but that's that, that's right. It's so... I mean. My take, key takeaway from this is that um, is that I'm quite glad that Matt Hancock had not watched other films. If he if he what if he'd only had access to my Netflix watch list and my DVD collection, he, you know, he, instead of Contagion, he might have been saying things like, "Just go with me on this, guys. If we make a massive giant man out of Wicker and then we get a virgin policeman and we burn him in it, I think the vaccine will just go away." So, um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, obviously, the Crying Game is a film that that Matt Hancock, um, uh, Hat Mancock rather, to give him his, his correct title, um, should be uh, is probably familiar with. Um, I don't know any more. Uh, well, um, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think. Is there? A, um, I mean, I, I I I take inspiration from film the whole time. I mean, one of the inspirations actually for me. Thinking about becoming a journalist was was watching uh, all the president's men. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, sadly, that huge story hasn't quite ever fallen into my lap. But maybe I don't know. I mean, um, the, uh, is, it, maybe you could watch. Uh, well, I mean, maybe you could watch the thick of it and flip it. You know what I mean? Because um, this this great nation of ours seems to be in a constant has been for years actually. Uh, in fact, since the <laughs> the thick of it. Now doesn't seem that outlandish at all, does it? I was watching a few episodes uh, only yesterday and thinking, well, nowadays it'd probably it'd probably be a panel on the inside of the paper. This, <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Desmond Swain says uh, thick of it things every every five minutes, doesn't he? Um, I did think. Uh, I don't know if you ever if you're familiar with a film called A Simple Plan, um, which was also a sort of best selling novel but that is a film that is about the dangers of giving large sums of money away to people that you know and are familiar with um which uh hatmancock um uh, might uh, might have been pulled up on once or twice in in the, in the comments i also thought the original blade runner because that, oh, if yes. you think about it blade runner is a film about a, actually a successful test and trace program isn't it they they test them with the old Voight camp method to see yeah. whether they're androids, and then Rick Deckard, uh, played by Harrison Ford, goes off, goes off tra- and, and tracks them and and uh, and retires them. So, um, but wouldn't that be? Wouldn't we then have perhaps someone who's infected with coronavirus testing people? Because obviously Deckard was a replicant, wasn't he? Well, oh, he, spoiler, he, alert. spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry. 
spoiler alert. Well, or was he or wasn't he? I don't know. That well, is one of the best films. Which version of the film you watch, doesn't it? Very I can't remember. Does. By the end, was he in the in the new one? Does it? Is he a? Is he a, a replicant in that? I guess he might be. Who knows? Well, it's very much hinted towards. That is not a spoiler. Um, and two great films, actually, the the original and the uh, the follow up, twenty forty nine, both really good films. I thought. Yes, twenty forty nine is is I think is probably the one of the one of the uh, the longest. I was right in the middle on the first night, right in the middle of an absolutely packed cinema. The sort of thing that just yeah. seems incredible now. Uh, right in the middle, in the centre, and. Um, Obviously, it goes on for nearly three hours, doesn't it, I think? And I'll, I've got to say, I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. It was really magnificent, but I was bursting for the toilet for the last 45 minutes, um, which is... Uh, yes, lo- this is a lovely story, Steve. I'm, we're so glad you're back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. This is the you kind have of content a... that the listeners have missed. <laughs> you, you would have been the bladder runner, getting out there as quickly as possible. <laughs> Getting into that cubicle and getting back, man alive! I, did, I I I was I was straight out of there, straight out of there. Remember when we could all sit in cinemas together? What a Is thing it? that was! You Is could take your in with you. You could go to the pub afterwards, Is talk it about rain? it. It was amazing. I'm going to say it for a third time because it's funny. Pissing in rain. <laughs> Oh dear! Ah, <laughs> oh, see, we're back. See, we're back. We're are you excited back. about the Super Bowl, by the way? Yes, let's get that out of the way. I'm taking tomorrow off and Monday off. Just right. to why are you taking? A... Why are you taking three days before the Super Bowl off? Well, I've decided that I've got a whole schedule. So tomorrow yes. I'm going to watch a. I'm going to watch a couple of classics. Um, okay. I'm very sad and pay for yes. access to. Um, to the the uh, NFL channel, etc. So I'm going to watch maybe not. Super, I don't think I watched one Super Bowl. I don't know which one yet. But then I think I'm going to watch the uh, Miracle in Minnesota, which if you follow the NFL, you'll be aware of. And then um, so I'm going to do that tomorrow, just a bit of prep, you know. Then Saturday there's some of the sport on, so I'll check that out. Maybe watch a bit of the bit of the sort of hype. Lots of hype. Not as much this year, obviously, because they can't do it in person. Usually the Super Bowl week is this big thing, isn't it? It's a big media event. Not so much this year, but um, but I'll take a bit of that in. Then Sunday, you've got to plan your day right, you see. You've got to move everything back a little bit because what I do is I go to bed at about six and then get a good four or five hours sleeping. Then you're fully wide awake for Super Bowl. And then you've definitely got to have Monday off, obviously. Yeah, well, I've I've got a bit of I've got a bit of work to do on Monday, but I will certainly be uh, I will certainly be up and uh, up and watching it. Um, and what do you what do you reckon? I, I, I be, it be I'm not a massive fan of Tom Brady. I didn't like him in a Patriots uniform, but it'd be a great story, wouldn't it? If if uh, if Tom Brady was to win win the Super Bowl at 43 with a with a team that probably unfancied at the start of the season, although they have got some good weapons even without him. Yeah, they uh, yeah, I mean. You know, it should be, it should be the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, but who would bet against Tom Brady and the the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Um, it, it'll, it's it's going to be a really good game. I tell you something, mm. new uh, new European podcast listener. Since I've been away for so long, and, I, and I've I've been you know I've been writing stuff. I've I've been doing doing um, doing some other stuff, and hopefully you will see the the the, the fruits of those labours um, over the next few months. Um, 
something to look out for um, on if you do stay up or if you want if you just fancy doing it is is if you're if you're into if you're into betting if you've got a spare fiver and you want to bet on something then i'm going to give you i'm going to give you a bet don't blame me if it loses but um but in four of the last five super bowls uh the shortest touchdown has been under one and a half yards one and a half yards Ah. Um, and um, it, it, the only other time, the, the, the one out of the last five years that this wasn't under one and a half yards, the shortest touch, there was only one touchdown in the game, and that touchdown was um, of two yards. Uh, this is going to be a high-scoring game. Teams will be marching up and down the field. Um, other bets are available. Please don't put your house on it, but I would <laughs> say, if you wanted to make it interesting, a cheeky £5 on the shortest touchdown being under one and a half yards is a thing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, when the fun stops, stop. Stop. Absolutely. Um, but the fun has only just started because I can see that we've been joined. Oh, we have. Yes, Hello. we've been joined by by the the TNE legend, Matt <laughs> Kelly. How are you, Matt? You've got some incredible news to share. I'm sure some of the listeners have already seen it, but please tell yeah. us from the top. Tell us everything. Well, the TNE the TNE has uh, has new owners, which is which is uh, which is great news. Uh, Archant, who the they're the uh, company that launched it, and for whom up until Sunday I was working as chief content officer, um, have sold it to me and uh, and a group of other investors, including Steve Anglesey, who was uh, encouraging gambling a few months ago. <laughs> I just caught the tail end of that. I'm not sure that's our future of the new European. We're sponsored by Betfred or something like that. But, anyway. <laughs> but uh, no, we're, we're, we're under new owners, and, and the new owners uh, include um, uh, Lionel Barber, the former Financial Times editor, uh, Mark Thompson, the former chief executive of the New York Times and the former BBC director general, um, a guy called Tavert Henriquez, who may be less familiar to you, but in the world of tech is... A huge name. He's the founder of Transferwise, um, uh, massive, massive kind of multi-billion uh, company, um, and uh, a couple of venture capitalists who think we've got a good uh, commercial future ahead of us. But the the best thing for me, um, as I was kind of pu- putting this deal together, was just how uh, willing everybody was to get involved, you know, and they really get the idea of the new European. They think it can be bigger and better. And so do I, and I know you guys do too. Um, and so hopefully that's the plan over the next year or so. We'll be looking at everything we do. We'll be uh, trying to work out how we can get the market that we deserve. Cause you know, I know people who get us really like us, but mm. I'd still meet people after four and a half years even in our industry, who'd never heard of us, which is really depressing. But it kind of speaks to the, the kind of absence of, of funds we've had to, to do some marketing and to really get the, the newspaper as brilliant as we want it to be um, and to develop digi- the digital side of things. So I think the future for us is going to be trying to create, um, you know, tap into that sense of, of um really emotional engagement that people have developed with the new european which is you know even if they don't read it from cover to cover or they don't spend all day on the website or something you know people seem to be really pleased that it's there and that we're still here um and 
I think there's never been, you know, a lot, a lot of people have been saying that, oh, but Brexit's happened, so surely that's the end of the new European. But actually, I think we're just starting now. You know, I think this is uh, the most exciting political time ever. And I think we're coming through some really dark times. And now is the time to, to look forward, you know, to try and work out how does Britain move forward from here? And what's the, how do we engage now with Europe? Because we're still European, we're not a member of the European Union, but we're as European as we ever were. Uh, how do we look to Europe and how does Europe look to us? What's that conversation? How can we build a bridge, perhaps, you know, an emotional bridge or an intellectual bridge to, to what's going on in Europe? And I think, I hope um, that we'll do well as a business. But more importantly, I'm just delighted that it means that we will you know, there's a new chapter. There's a second chapter, something that was meant to last four weeks. And here we are now, four and a half years in, with uh, some of the, you know, the biggest names in media and technology backing our future. So I am thrilled. It's been a big week for us. It's an incredible thing, Matt. And, you know, my huge congratulations to to, to, to you and Steve, I do note that you didn't ask me for any any cash. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a Yorkshireman. I'm loaded. I could have you know I could have helped out. But you were constantly asking me for a pay rise, so I assumed you were skint. Um, Amal Rajan did a really great blog, blog I thought on Monday, which which really sort of explained some of the ins and outs, and people should check it out after they listen to the podcast. But he, he did say editorial of the New European needs to prove it's not just a Romaniac rag. I mean, yeah. w- w- would would you agree with it? It's never a rag, of course, but would you agree with the sentiment there? I do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think um, we don't want to be one of those kind of Japanese soldiers in the in the bush. You know, um, haven't quite heard that things have moved on. Things have moved on. It doesn't mean that we're any less angry about what happened in 2016. You know, that, that doesn't go away. But the, the, the power of the argument, if all you're doing is repeating the same arguments about the iniquities of the referendum, then I think, you know, it's now falling on deaf ears. And I think we've all got to look forward and, you know, take a lesson from the Brexiteers. You know, they, they had a long-term strategy which they never let go of, which was to get Britain out of the European Union. And after 30-odd years, they pulled it off. Well, I don't think it's going to take 30 years for Britain to re-engage with the European Union. I think the European Union has to change. You know, it's by no means a perfect institution. And we saw, we saw the kind of... Uh, the, the, the flaws of it during the, the vaccine chaos last week, you know, we saw how the European Commission can really, you know, cut off its, its uh, damage its own best interests. But I think we've got to, you know, the pragmatic thing, and if you're going to win an argument, you've got to present compelling evidence. And I think that's part of what the new European will be doing is presenting compelling evidence about how Britain can be better for uh, understanding our close neighbours and how Europe can be better for understanding what's going on in Britain. And perhaps what happened in Britain in 2016 gives a clue to some big things that that the EU has to change if it wants to engage, not not just with us, but with movements across Europe who are very sceptical now about the EU as it's set up. I always believe, and I, I... you know, we'll never not believe that Britain's best interests are to be as inextricably tied to our European neighbours as we possibly can be. Um, but we've got a challenge now to, to move the move Britain's uh, mindset a little bit 
but you can't do that just by shouting at people. You've got to engage with debate and you've got to produce ideas for progress and, uh, and make your case in a slightly more sedate way. And from a media point of view, to be honest with you, um, I, you know, I, I'm as rough and tumble as they come uh, in terms of media, but I think we've probably had a bit too much shouting and not enough thinking in terms of media. And it would be nice to do a bit more of the, uh, of the latter going forward. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I always loved about um, when I used to um, sort of uh, help sub and, and work, work on the paper uh, a few years ago, and, and one of my favourite bits of the paper was always the arts and culture section. A lot of people, I think, don't realise what an incredible, I think it's the best arts and culture section out there and has been for some time. Um, that will all remain and, and continue yeah. as before, I presume? Well, I think it is important. You know, I think the culture of Europe is as important as the politics. In fact, I think the two are, you know, quite hard to pick apart, really. And certainly the culture of Europe is why I love the fact that we're lucky enough to be Europeans and we've got all of this richness on our doorstep. And I think there is an opportunity for people to both be better informed about, you know, UK media is fairly insular. You know, you very rarely read great stories about what's really happening in Europe or what's what European theatre or music or literature is doing now. So I think we've got an opportunity there to do something different, but also, you know, just on the, the fact that you can sit down with the new European and you can read about, you know, hopefully post lockdown, obviously you can read about great theatre or concerts or cultural events in countries that you love. That always just gives me a nice warm feeling, you know? So I think on that level, Absolutely, it's it's intrinsic and, and core to what we do. Yeah, and and you know the, the the new European as a brand is is has has grown. How do you see that sort of uh, progressing as we as we move forward into this brave new world? Yeah, well, I mean, I think by by accident almost because you know it was a fairly random. You know, we didn't think to do any market research or employ any you know, advertising agencies or whatever to come up with a title. We just I plugged it out of thin air. And um, I think almost by accident, we fluked upon a, a brand title that completely describes the essence of, of, uh, of what we're about, which is, you know, a new Europe. It's about, you know, what is, let's not get mired in old politics and old party political dogma and all of this, you know, what can, Europe be in the future? Uh, how can we and our kids enjoy Europe to the max and uh, look at it with fresh eyes? And th this idea that, you know, I would say um, one of the most interesting things in the last few years has been how the polarization of politics and how the, those two traditional parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have kind of drifted away from each other and have opened up, I think, a considerable gap in the centre where a lot of people find themselves, and probably there are a lot of people like me who look at both Labour and the Conservatives and say, do you know what, it doesn't quite match the way I feel anymore. And, and the way I think is slightly different in this regard to what they say or that regard to what they say. And I think there's a... You know, it's very difficult in the UK because the party, the political parties are so entrenched in in people's kind of minds that it's hard to carve a new politics. But I do seriously believe that there are 
there's a big constituency of people who no longer feel natural labor or natural Tory and want to be a little bit more pragmatic in their politics. And that doesn't mean being wishy-washy or, you know, sitting on a fence. I think the center of politics can be the most radical place because the center of politics is where you actually get stuff done. And what we've seen is, you know, especially under Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of him, nothing, even if he'd gone into number 10, nothing was going to get done because it was too far, it was too far removed and too embedded in dogma. Uh, and, and a dogma, by the way, that was far from being revolutionary, was outdated and, and time-worn, you know. Uh, whereas I think the middle of politics, the middle ground, is where things can get done, where you can bring people together and you can compromise and you can make your case and you can actually get things delivered, which is, which is you know, more important, I would say, now as we come out of this pandemic, God willing, and we resolve you know, whatever the effects of Brexit are, I think we're going to need a form of politics where people can come together, can discuss things sensibly and agree to move forward step by step and try and make things better. That's why I like this idea of ideas for progress being a kind of core mission statement for the new European. Mm-hmm. And just finally, Matt, you are now a media mogul, of course, so we don't want to keep you too long. So you're very important. Um, but the um, <laughs> you, don't take my, I'm, I'm just checking out Robert Maxwell's yacht, which well, I believe is going cheap. Not, I've, I've got to say, be, be wary of the guardrail. Yeah, no, I've heard. Yeah, well, I'm getting, definitely going to get an, uh, another toilet installed near the bedroom. <laughs> oh dear, um, being, over, being over the side. <laughs> um, but but you, you you personally must be very proud, and you must be really proud of the team as well, because it has been blood, sweat, and tears at times, hasn't it? Well, I mean, it, without a shadow, I've loved working at Argent. Let me just say that because, you know, the sad side of it for me is to leave a company uh, which I think is doing an amazing and very progressive job about tackling what what is, you know, another huge issue, which is local news and local information. So I'm sad to uh, leave that. But with absolute hand on heart, uh, the team at Archon are the best team I've ever worked with in terms of a collective of journalists who want to innovate and do new things. And the small team that worked on the New European, yourselves included, um, well, I mean, it was it, it was it was literally magic in those early days when we were working, you know, 14, 15 hour days and on publication night, you know, we'd end up at the pub for last orders and kind of collapse. They were the best days of my journalistic career and I'll never forget them. They were just marvelous because we never knew what was going to happen. And we never felt that there was never any expectation that we were going to build a big business or something like this or something that was going to last for a long time. And I think that lack of fear and the sheer joy of it somehow found its way through to the, to the pages and, and through to the readers. And I think we are still benefiting from that that sense of energy and fun, uh, it's still somewhere there in the DNA of the new European and, and over my dead body will we ever le- lose that. Absolutely. I can I can certainly agree with you on that. It was a, a, a heck of a lot of fun. And I know that the guys who are still on the new European are still having a great deal of fun. Um, Matt, we will speak again, I'm sure. Congratulations and thank you so much for your time. You can get back to that yacht now. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> Take care. Bye. See you soon, Matt. Bye-bye. 
Steve, I think we should just we should probably, well, incredible. I mean, we should you know we should just mention it. This is a this is a, obviously nothing will change for the readers. It's you know this is a media story really, but it is important because this is a success story that's come out of of Brexit, and it real the new European really is part of a bigger groundswell, a, a collective that have always loved Europe but never came together, particularly because they didn't feel they had to or would need to. They did need to, and, you know, we're going to talk about flag-waving in a second of a different type, but they they do have a champion now in the new European. They have them for four years, and that now that future seems secured to me. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've said this on this, this podcast many times, but the, um, you know, the... The, the the positive the big positive of this um of this um this whole brexit thing is um is that it it created that uh, it brought people together who really believed in it and for the first time it gave us a unified pro european if if not completely pro european um union movement in this country and the new european has been really instrumental um in that and the uh, the stuff that you said and matt said about the culture section too um is uh, is all uh, is is all true um and uh, I mean, it's something that section we're working on yeah um, it's it's very ahead it just it feels you know especially for me after three months away doing some planning and some writing and some other stuff um it is uh, it is very exciting um we have a few uh, reader submissions about films that hat mancock oh, uh, should watch get, which let's, we let's mentioned let's mention up that, at yes. the top there uh last tango in paris oh um, goodness uh says uh, says elizabeth can i um, ask why elizabeth <laughs> well uh, yeah let's uh is it to do with those new swabs that are much more accurate than the nasal ones Let's, well, yeah, exactly. Let's hope they're not sort of butter-based. And uh, V. Collins says uh, Matt Hancock should watch Groundhog Day to learn that without consequences, nothing matters. Andrew Hewitt says Hat Mancock should watch the Andromeda Strain uh, because they use proper PPE. Um, the uh, uh, Mike Little says the Omega Man, um, which is uh, which is another sort of uh, viral based thing. Uh, Beefy has got some great uh, suggestions. Uh, he suggests uh, I don't know if you can spot a theme coming here. Uh, Billy Liar, invention of lying, the good liar, body of lies, dangerous lies, uh, and Pinocchio. Um, and he also <laughs> suggests Dead Man Walking, although I think that might be one for Gavin Williamson to watch. Mark Collin um, says Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, so um, thank you for those. If you have a suggestion for, for films that have Mancock um, should watch um, or be made to watch, then please, um, please uh, send them, uh, tweet them to us at The New European. Do you think we should stick him in one of those, you know, like on Clockwork Orange, where they make him look at all the look at all the things, and he's got his eyelids. Absolutely, uh, somebody like has that. in fact sent us a, a gif or gif, uh, if you prefer, of that that um, that very thing. Yeah, I think that um, actually damaged his eyes, didn't it? Because the guy Malcolm who was McDowell. yeah, the guy who yeah. was supposedly putting the eye drops in was really nervous because <laughs> he was being filmed, and he kept forgetting to do it. Oh God, talk about suffering for your art. What a bizarre career of, of, of Malcolm McDowell, you know, yeah. I mean, just 
just just Caligula. crazy. Been in some of the greatest films, um, uh, certainly of the, the sort of the nineteen sixties and seventies, and then you know by the end of the um, by the end of the seventies, the, the he was dressed up as H.G. Wells on the trail of Jack the Ripper, I think, and then he was in he was in um, Caligula, wasn't he? Was he Caligula. Caligula? He was, in, yes, in yes. the soft porn version of Caligula. Um, Caligula would have blushed. Caligula would he would have blushed if he'd seen that. He it was would. terrible. That too, and John Gielgud. Yeah, um, yeah. that was a very um, strange decision. Your, not, if you're homeschooling, <laughs> it's not one to show the nippers. Um, when you're trying to teach them about um, about history, or, or um, good filmmaking, or, or any, indeed any... good filmmaking, it is a yeah. it is an absolute <laughs> shocker. It's not one that you'll find on Disney Plus. However, anyway, yes. let Sam us Shanks, get. By the way, sorry, Sam Shanks. Is that a rhyming slang? It is not, and it's <laughs> Sam Shanks is a uh, is a lady, Samantha Shanks. Sam, Sam Shanks says Jurassic Park. Ah. He should be made to watch Jurassic Park, the whole series. Big ideas, dodgy staff support, catastrophic disasters, some of which leave the island and affect others. Uh, well, that's a good point. Go. I've Another only ever seen the first one. Strain. Maurizio Molino says that. Uh, Jeff Sandberg says he should watch the, uh, the Cassandra Crossing. Uh, following that, all hospitalised patients could be loaded into a sealed train and crashed into a remote valley. Uh, there you go. Uh, that's a, there you go. So Anything you could go. happen. Maybe it's better, actually, that he doesn't watch any more films. Yeah, I think I it just, probably is better just that wondering. he doesn't watch any more films. Wondering, because if you know... For, um, more votes for, uh, for um, uh, Groundhog Day, by the way. A lot of people are saying Groundhog Day. Soylent Green... It was Groundhog uh, Day this week. It was. And what did do you know what the little groundhog said? Uh, no. Uh, it said, sadly, there was going to be six more weeks of winter. Oh. Um, and, um, which there is, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, kind of fair enough. Coming, um, lockdown is coming. Lockdown is still happening. Right. Let's, um, let's leave go. the films. Let's leave them there, Matt. Uh, no, you're not Matt, Steve, not Matt, and 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 talk about the political news of the week because um, vaccines, Northern Ireland, the B word. What's what's happening there? Well, I mean, shall we start with uh, the, the the? I mean, let's start with the fact that the the sort of the Brexiteers sense of moral superiority lasted about four days, didn't it? As Matt yeah. Kelly mentioned. Uh, the um, matters of uh, related to the, U, the EU Commission's botched rollout of the vaccine, and 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 remember, I know you'll be familiar with this. Remember that at the start of of, of the, the the idea that when when the idea came that vaccines were happening and that they were they were close and there were going to be sort of four laboratories, uh, all with sort of you know semi viable vaccines. When that happened. Um, countries like Germany, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, um, all announced plans to roll out their own vaccines. Then they were persuaded by the EU Commission that a a, a mass, a joined-up approach um, would be uh, the best thing. And it, so far, let, I mean, let, let's not mince words, it's proven to be an absolute 
uh, nightmare, hasn't it? Um, it's proven to be a disaster. That disaster uh, came to a head last weekend, um, standoff between Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, uh, a big row with um, AstraZeneca, producers of the, um, the so-called Oxford vaccine um that is featured on the front of the cover of the new european print edition mm. this weekend we had um article 16 briefly invoked which <laughs> kind of accidentally supposedly <laughs> accidentally yeah well we've all invoked article 16 a few beers on a friday night haven't we and we've all done that um but basically article 16 isn't it is the right of one partner in this deal to to sort of sharply diverge and um uh, from the the Northern Ireland Protocol, so we had a you know the idea that the EU was going to stop um, vaccines uh, travelling from Europe via uh, Ireland uh, into Northern Ireland and therefore into the UK, um, and it all got very very messy. And since then, we've had Emmanuel Macron, who is you know I mean he, he's not running for re-election, but there are elections in France next year doing various bits of sabre-rattling, first of all, falsely saying um, that the vaccine wasn't effective for mm. people um, over 65, which, of course, it is effective for people over 65. God knows where he got that from. Um, and then uh, ruminating on the, the, the nature of Brexit, all of which I agree with him about. Uh, the second bit I agree with him about, but not really the, the, the right time to it do was that. Some... Was the, the, the UK at the same time has got the, the third most effective vaccine rollout in the world, but beyond Israel will be on the UAE. But of course we're dealing with uh, an awful lot more problems, uh, an awful lot more population uh, mm. than both of those. We've overtaken uh, the USA um, in terms of percentage head of population of people vaccinated and the others are sort of trailing in our wake Denmark is um, is one of the next I think the next sort of uh, big country Malta are, are in there as well but again a very small amount of people um, I mean do you think that and of course I mean I agree with everything saying that the you know the vaccine rollout to the shock of all of us seems to be going superbly well I think probably because it was firmly left in the hands of the NHS rather than uh, alongside some some good early work and of course the brilliant work of um, Steven Soderbergh uh, and his uh, 2011 film Contagion which without that we wouldn't have had uh, such a successful rollout as we've talked about previously on this podcast but I mean it didn't didn't look good for the EU did it it wasn't we 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 did touch on this last week on the pod it I almost felt a little bit disappointed with them, whereas if it had been the other way around, I wouldn't have been surprised or shocked. But, um, you know, and there was some dangerous briefing coming out from Macron, like you said, and some and some dangerous briefing actually coming out from the Germans as well about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And it just made them all look a bit silly, didn't it? It really did make them look very, very, very silly. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's it has... I think for I think for people who listen to this podcast, people who buy the New European, it is, you know, I think that the, the early weeks of Brexit have confirmed the worst of um, of, of what we feared. All right, that you know there, there haven't been um, there haven't been food shortages in mainland uh, in, in mainland Britain. Well, sorry, mainland yeah mainland Britain, but there has been 
um, empty shelves in Northern Ireland, the fishing mm. industry that we said would be decimated by this has been completely decimated mm. by this. We, you know, we, we pointed to uh, problems with supply chain, especially into Northern Ireland and red tape. And all of that is coming true. We, we said that uh, young people would be shafted and musicians uh, having been, um, you know, really um, uh, had their, their livelihoods threatened by COVID uh, would go on to be shafted when planning tours uh, post lockdown. And that has all happened. And this, um, you know, this this is the, is the, the, the first um, sign for a lot of people um, that the EU institutions don't really function as well as they might have thought, um, you know, what big institution does function as well as they might have thought, but it's been very embarrassing. It's been a wake-up call. It's given ammunition yeah. to people who said uh, we were right to be out of that all along. And, of course, it is, um, as, as John Kampner points out in, in the, the, the print edition of the, the New European this week, it has um, taken away um from the you know the the disastrous um the disastrous work that the government has done in the first bit of this pandemic you know it happened a couple of days after boris johnson announced that we had passed the threshold of a hundred thousand deaths um lockdowns have been a total mess uh it results in one of the worst casualty rates in the world per head of population uh, the PPE thing was a farce. Uh, cronyism, as we mentioned before, when we were laughing about Hat Mancock running rife. Uh, test and trace has been a, a, a complete disaster, costing us millions and millions of pounds uh, per week. Who knows what those people are actually doing? GDP has fallen at a much sharper rate than most other countries. Um, and, and it, it, it kind of mitigates all of that. But I think that we are going to have to get used to this. We're going to have to get used to, and personally, you know, when things like the Nissan plant, which Nissan's owners had said, well, post-Brexit, when Brexit actually happens, when the, when the um, transition period ends, we, we're going to think about moving out of Sunderland. Then they said immediately afterwards, well, we're going to stay in Sunderland. And I'm delighted about that. I'm delighted. I've absolutely no desire whatsoever to see British people losing their jobs to prove some kind of point. Um, I think we should all be really pleased um, when we, um, you know, when we sign a significant trade deal or something, um, because a lot of them that we have signed have not been that significant. But when we do sign a significant trade deal, we should all be pleased. Um, and we should all be pleased when, um, when British jobs are upheld. And, you know, if we end up, out of this buying, if, if, if there are more British goods to be bought and sold and, and there's more of a buy British feeling, um, even at a slightly higher cost, then that is a good thing too. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's been, you know, it, you cannot say that it's been the vaccine rollout has, has worked in any sort of way um, for the EU at all. The one, I guess the one thing you could say is that the, 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 the accidental Article 16, whoops, I invoked Article 15, 16, 
thing has maybe led to, um, you know, AstraZeneca and Pfizer promising to deliver things a little bit quicker um, in Europe that they, than they might possibly have done. But I don't yeah. think it's it's been a good look for them at all. Now, what's happened since then? Because I mentioned, you know, it lasted all of four days. Now we see the the awful problems that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, uh, which we all predicted, you know, we see the, the chickens coming home to roost don't we in northern ireland in in, yeah. in a you know in the most terrible way um customs checks have already been suspended we have michael gove who said that there was absolutely no point in extending the transition period by three weeks or three months asking for it effectively to be extended by three years once another another uh, two and a bit years of no customs checks um, and I don't think, uh, you know, a grace period, as he's now calling it. And I don't think that is going to wash um, uh, whatsoever. You know, the, the, the red tape um, that is holding up the, the flow of goods, uh, all of the other problems of this are entirely of the making of the government and the, the kind of Brexit that they chose. Um, and... Um, and, and so here we are. We're sort of we're, we're back at we're back at, um, at, at square one, really. The, the EU is damaged. The EU Commission is certainly damaged. The government is now damaged again, and you can see how bad it is because you know we see people like Ian Duncan Smith, who said there was no need. He didn't. He? he said there was no need to have any scrutiny of the uh of boris johnson's deal he said well you know we've had four years of this kind of scrutiny let's just get it done it's all fine now he says the end the northern ireland protocol is a terrible disaster and it's simply not working and um, we've got ian paisley jr saying that the trans since the transition period ended i mean he voted for this he wanted the dup wanted brexit in the first place um um, sorry, the uh, in, in, uh, Paisley Jr. wanted Brexit in the first place. He wanted a hard Brexit, and now he says it's it's all an unmitigated disaster. So you know, I think this has been a very very damaging um, period, um, as we suspected, um, for the UK, and it's also been a very damaging period uh, of of late for the the EU Commission. It has. It's not been a good few weeks for the EU, frankly. Um, I'll tell you someone else who's not had a good few weeks. Yes. And it, and it pains me, this, to say, because you and the listener very well knows my my deep attraction and love for this man. That ho- I hoped, well, and still do hope, that he is the saviour of the centre of politics. But, but Keir Starmer's not having a good time, is he? Uh, he has had a very tough, um, a, a very tough few weeks. I think you know, he did start well. He has. Uh, this is, a, I mean, this is a difficult time to be in any job, as we know. Um, it's a really difficult time to be the, the leader of the opposition. Your job is to oppose, um, and he, you know, he seemed to be doing that quite effectively, chipping away at Boris Johnson week after week. Boris Johnson growing increasingly more rattled by Keir Starmer's calm and uh, detail-focused approach. Boris Johnson kind of, you know, reacting to that by delivering stuff off the top of his head, which Keir Starmer could then pick apart. But 
I think the longer that, that this crisis has gone on and the, 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 the tragic turn that events took um, in sort of November when we had the, 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 the mutant strains and the variant came out and we've had another lockdown, I think people have um, grown tired with Keir Starmer. There was a, a notable piece of polling which said that um, people were... Um, people were frustrated with the fact that all he did was criticise. Now, you know, I mean, that again, that criticising the government is opposition, isn't it? That is pretty much yeah. um, what Keir Starmer uh, is paid to do. And he's also, I think, been very, very careful to uh, to praise the government uh, when, when he can and, and to offer his support, um, which Sometimes. has been rejected... Time and time again, right up yeah. until the moment two weeks ago when Boris Johnson said, I wish you would offer to support us instead of uh, doing anything else. So, I mean, I think um, with the, I think that's a little bit unfair on, on Keir. Not what you've said, the polling is a little bit unfair on Keir because there have been times when I think he, he, he's been very supportive when, the support, when he's believed that the support is right. I think on other occasions he might have been even a little bit slavish. And the, you yes. know, the, and and perhaps he didn't need to support. But again, he's backed into this bizarre corner whereby really we're on a war footing. You know, it's not a traditional war, but we, you know, as a nation, we're we've got a we've got a um, we've got a single four that we all need to be together in this pandemic, and it, it is hard to to oppose then. So I think to say that he's always criticising, I think. I don't know. I, I, I think that that's misconstrued. But, um, mm. but what I'd also say about Keir Starmer and Labour is that they are only still taking baby steps away from what was a catastrophe. And they don't actually need to be... I, I think it was... Um, it did, didn't, uh, I think it was Tony Blair in the last few weeks. It might have been Alistair Campbell. It was one of the two. Said, you know, this Labour Party should be 10 points ahead in the polls. Well, yeah, perhaps. But equally... They don't actually need to be right now. I think I think Keir Starmer um, just needs to, to to quietly get on with it. I don't, you know, I'm not I'm not worried that this is um, that this is a Labour Party that is not going to get any cut through in the polls. I think we're too far out of that, and we're in the middle of um, you know the strangest of times. Um, but but equally, I mean, this the the what about the um, the, the flag and all that stuff? I know. Clive Lewis, a Norwich MP, has been quite critical in the Guardian, hasn't he, of, the, of this leaked strategy? Yes, he has. Yes, yeah. to to try. Yes, and... he has. So, I mean, this is the um, well, uh, the, the two things that have happened this week, which have had hashtags uh, on Twitter like Labour Leadership Contest 2021 trending, um, and and have provided a, a sort of field day for for Keir Starmer's. Uh, people who don't like Keir Starmer within the Labour Party and outside of the Labour Party. The two things um, have been, first, the unforced error at Prime Minister's Question Time um, mm. on Wednesday when uh, Keir Starmer misheard Boris Johnson. Um, Boris Johnson, he thought, was saying that... Um, <coughs> that Labour had wanted the UK to join the EU's vaccine scheme. Um, what he was actually saying was that Keir Starmer had wanted um, 
Britain to stay in the European Medical Agency, which, you know, Labour did say, and I still think is a good idea. If, they'd stayed in, if we'd stayed in the European Medical Agency, we would have had access to everything that Europe uh, is doing uh, about the vaccine, and we still would have been able to roll out our own vaccine. Um, so, um, but he, but he, 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 he sort of, he lost his rag a little bit, didn't he, at PMQs, and we're told he yeah. lost his rag behind the speakers uh, with Johnson, uh, a heated discussion. Um, I, I can't really imagine Keir Starmer having a heated discussion about anything, but apart from possibly early Smith's B-sides, but apparently had, they had a heated discussion. Donkeys. Which, which was witnessed by Mark Francois, <laughs> who said he was puce with anger and wagging his finger aggressively. And, <laughs> you know, if anyone is going to know about <laughs> being puce with anger and wagging his finger aggressively, that is pretty much... It's Mark Francois, isn't it? Because that's pretty much what he does from the, the moment he gets up to the moment he goes to bed. But the other thing is this this sort of report that they have commissioned, which says uh, Labour, uh, it's a presentation that was made to, uh, to Labour uh, about how they can win the Red Wall seats back. They're calling them foundation seats. Uh, and it says Labour must make use of the union flag, veterans and dressing smartly mm. uh, as part of a rebranding um, to win back the trust of disillusioned voters. And uh, Clive Lewis, who we've had on this podcast many times, local MP to us in Norwich, um, said the Tory party absorbed UKIP. Now Labour appears to be absorbing the language and symbols of the Tory party. Clive Lewis, of course, can say these things because he was a soldier, wasn't he? You know, he's not just some uh, guy off the street who doesn't like it. Was, yeah. um, he was a soldier. He served in Afghanistan. He was in theatre, yeah. Um, he said, um, this isn't patriotism, it's fatherlandism. There's a better way to build social cohesion than moving down the track of the nativist Right. I mean, so let me. I'm just, can I just give my thoughts on that because yes, um, please. <clears throat> I have mentioned many times one of the guiding principles. Oh, I mentioned it many times on this podcast. So imagine, imagine if you knew me outside this podcast, you'd be really bored of this story now. I, my grandfather always said, "Beware of the man waving a flag." Right, and it took me a little while to understand that that wasn't a Bradford City fan in the way end, but was yes. was you know people people waving national flags, and and uh, and and he was he was right. That's not to say that. People shouldn't wave flags. That's not the problems I have no problem with, you know, football, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. That is fine. But um, but should Labour move that way? Well, I think Labour have got a problem in that they want to be, they don't want to be seen that they're not proud of Great Britain. That's understandable. And not, you know, that they are opposed to the union and the country and all that kind of thing. They don't want to be seen as that. It's a lot of their voters um, and, and voters that maybe uh, floating voters wouldn't like that. Um, and how do you explain to a great number of people the difference between patriotism and, and, and nationalism or dangerous nationalism? You know, that's the, it's a very fine line, this. Now, it reminded me of the Labour of the mid-90s um, because they got lucky, really, didn't they? Because there was this groundswell of you know in 1992 Morrissey draped himself in a union flag at Finsbury Park and was vilified for it 
Mm. Two and a half years later, Noel Gallagher put had a Union Jack guitar and everyone loved it. There was a yeah. shift in the thinking around the flag at that time. And that was great, actually, because I was always... The, the Union flag for me as a kid, I always I associated it with um, people that I didn't want to be around, you know, um, you know the, the right. And then suddenly it was fine. You could wear, you know, I had a T-shirt with a Union flag on it just because it was a symbol of, you know, a slightly hollow culture at the time that we've spoke about very if you haven't listened to the kevin Coving, cummings episode please do because it's a super one and we explain all that in there but um labor didn't need to shy away from the flag at that time in history it was fine to be able to and they did use it not overtly but it was there it was i remember seeing in fact only the other night i bumped in i bumped into i found one of the old 90s labor manifestos and there was union flags used i think and um you know, now post Brexit, do you think that we're going to see perhaps um, a, 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 the the detoxification of that flag, and therefore maybe Clive's arguments, uh, although they should be noted, can be softened perhaps? Well, I think it's. I think this is something that Labour need. I think it's something that Labour needs to do. But I don't think the way to tackle it is to have a presentation no. uh, to the shadow cabinet or the NEC that says we, we from Monday we're all going to be patriotic. No. I think that Labour needs to define um, what patriotism means to the Labour Party, what bits of Britain we are proud of and, and how we express that. Um, I think that um, I think that this is a you know this this is um, and as you say we we talked about this with with Kevin Cummins I think this is a a long-standing thing for the left isn't it I grew up and you grew up in an era where you know the the some of the institutions of British patriotism you know the, the people who grew up in the immediate post-war generation grew up with enormous respect for the services and the police force. Yeah. People who grew up in the late 70s um, and the early 1980s, well, you know, will have seen the, um, will have seen the, the, the forces, you know, the, the, the most recent engagement of the forces was in Northern Ireland, um, which uh, where, you know, the, the, the prosecution of that was, dubious to say the least um and then in the Falklands and the prosecution of that was dubious to say the least and, and the police force of course tainted for a, a lot of people um of that generation uh, by what happened in uh in their the use uh, in industrial action especially the, the miners strike mm. and stuff like that so I think Labour is a tricky issue for people um on the on the left i think there is um you know i think i always think it's a really it's a really bad look to say i i, I really hate this country and what it stands for yeah um you know i could understand why groups of people would hate various aspects of britain and what britain stands for and has stood for certainly there are aspects of what britain and the flag has stood for and england and its flag has stood for that i particularly dislike but i do think that 
loving the 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 the, the country you know in the way that it was expressed you know this i mean this is total centrist dad stuff but for <laughs> me the 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 opening ceremony of the 2012 olympic games you know summed up the things that we love about britain and um, and in, embodied all of that and i thought kind of i foolishly thought defined a new kind of patriotism that you know even despite the the fact that um, you know there'd been a changing of the guard and the conservatives were were uh, were about to were, were taking control that um, that that would um, that that would sort of define our place in the world and and what we believed for a generation and of course you know four years later we we sort of turned our back on on all of that it seemed um uh, with with brexit so um so i think interesting that, i think interesting. defining patriotism is a really really key thing yeah. i think you're right that, that tony blair and new labor had sort of some, taken some steps to have a country that is you know was at ease with itself and was facing up to its past um and uh, you know this is it's a crucial thing for labor to play in but just saying Keir Starmer is going to stand in front of a flag as he did the <laughs> other day and he's going to put his arm around some soldiers, as I'm sure we will see images of him doing. Smartly dressed. For me, not going, to, not going to solve it. A couple of things there. It's just dawned on me, of course, that, I, I you know, I, and I'm sure you felt this as well, as we mentioned there in the mid-90s, you just started to feel a bit more at ease with yes. we're, we're, with being British. I've never really felt British, but English or whatever, just being from this little... <laughs> rock just off Europe it wasn't a bad thing anymore it, we, we it, it had somewhat been hijacked by some bad people but but we sort of wrestled it back we were moving forward and I too remember very vividly watching from a newsroom from an old newsroom watching the opening ceremony of the Olympics and thinking exactly what you've just said this is this is it we're move, this is just the next natural step and what we're actually presenting to the world here is the new the Britain of the new millennium, you know, forget all that stuff that went before um, that, you know, f- uh, we, we can, we can be proud to get behind this flag. Now it's a, it's a flag that represents progression and hope and um, inclusion and diversity. Um, but actually it wasn't a stepping stone, was it? It was, that was the, the opening ceremony was actually the closing party almost of what? Yes. 15, 15 or so years of, of progressive thoughts or, or a belief that a progressive politics, and I include David Cameron in that actually, in that progressive, you know, even um, from from the right of or from the centre right of politics, um, you know, that was the sort of Britain he was trying to portray as well. Even if there were some people within his party that weren't as keen, uh, but that was actually the door closing. That was our closing ceremony on a progressive new Britain, wasn't it? Rather than the stepping stone. It's very sad looking back, actually. Um, very sad indeed. What about what about um, dressing smartly? How important? <laughs> how important is that? Because you're a very you're a very snappy dresser, and what I'm you a, can I'm do, a Steve. Sharp dressed man. I've always been I've always been jealous. There's lots of things that I'm jealous about when it comes to you, <laughs> Steve Anglesey. Your your media ownership being one, but but that's a relatively new thing. 
Um, but you're always very, very well groomed. We've both got good hair. Hair respects hair. We've both got nice. I'm not saying the style of mine particularly is good, but we've got lots of it. But you can look, make a lot of things look smart, right? And you can wear a pair of jeans and look smart. You can wear a pair of New Balance trainers and look smart. Or you can pull off a properly smart suit and look smart. I have a problem. I, I tell you what, it's it, it's funny, it? isn't it? Because when they said look smart, that was one of the things that I found um, dress smartly, which I found absolutely remarkable. And it just shows the power of um, it. I tell you what, I tell you what it does show. It shows the great power that newspapers had um, twenty years ago, because people said it's important to be dressed smartly when you, one of the things in that focus group was people, when they talked about Labour said it's important for Labour politicians to dress smartly when they go to the cenotaph. Mm. And, you know, I don't remember there being any rows about how Jeremy Corbyn turned up at the cenotaph or how Tony Blair or Brown or Ed Miliband turned up at the cenotaph or Neil Kinnock. You know, we're still talking, aren't we, about Michael Foote and his... (laughs) smart jacket that was branded by you know the sun and the mail i think it was as a donkey jacket, donkey back jacket. when was that in 1981 or 1982 will have been yeah right at the start so of the 40 years on the idea that labor that you know the labor politicians show their disdain for the services by turning up not dressed smartly at the cenotaph is, yeah that's just uh, not true, not true. Know, even it, jeremy corbyn who's whose uh, dress sense was not always um perhaps the sort of thing that I would wear yes. um, was very smart in his appearances at the Cenotaph. Um, well, you know, actually, what, you know we, could, we, could, we could talk about the, the, the numerous failings of, of one person in particular who, you know, has, has turned up on, on several occasions to deliver the news, um, the, the tragic news about um, coronavirus with, you know, his hair looking like... Wurzel Gummidge, to be Who fair. John Pertwee, Wurzel Gummidge, <laughs> rather than the... Um, I, I've got to say, of all the things that I watched while I was away, one of the things that I liked the most was the was the, the episode of Wurzel Gummidge that was on was Christmas, that Christmas wasn't it? That was How the strange thing. That? I did watch... I did used to watch Wurzel Gummidge as a boy, but I always found it quite creepy. His head used to... His head used to turn round. Now we're yes. going to. Um, we did promise you, Rachel Johnson, and we're hoping that she will join us in a few minutes. She uh, obviously very busy woman, and as uh, she she had to put back her appearance. So don't worry, she is coming. But Steve, I thought in the meantime, um, we should have a little breather, and then we'll come back with what I think you're calling the Hall of Shame. The Hall of Shame. Brilliant. <laughs> Welcome back. Right, Steve, go for it. Tell us about the Hall of Shame. Well, I mean, people with long memories will remember that at the end of every podcast, we used to do the, the Brexiteers of the Week, didn't Brexiteer we? Brexiteer um, of the Week. Uh, I think that now Brexit is done, to coin a phrase, we should um, we should widen it out a little. Um, and uh, and so I'm going to call this section the Hall of Shame. And, and once again, like Brexiteers, of the week, it is going to be uh, it is going to be pointing out various um, various things that various people have said this week, which made me 
uh, roll my eyes and all of that kind of stuff. So the inaugural Hall of Shame. Um, and a few of our old friends will be entering the Hall of Shame. And one of them is Andrea Jenkins. Ah, yes. Uh, of course. MP for... Is she MP for Morley? Didn't she beat Ed Balls? Uh, yes, I believe I so. She, yes, I think she, she did, did yeah. Morley, uh, Morley and... Uh, uh, she's out, uh, out, Outwood. Morley and Outwood, that's right. And she tweeted uh, this week, she tweeted, a year ago today, we had our big Brexit bash celebration in Morley. Happy Brexit Day, everyone. What a night and what a year. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. What a year. <laughs> yes. What a year, Andrea. Um, I mean, yeah, okay. What a year. Uh, we can talk about um, Ian Duncan Smith. We've already talked about him, haven't we? We can talk all we like about um, Desmond Swain. But I thought for the, for the other entries into this week's uh, inaugural Hall of Shame, we should look outside the political... Uh, arena uh, mm. and we should look to Mike Parry of Talk Radio mm. um, he is Mike Parry used to be on Talk Sport of course he was on with Alan Brazil in the morning if you ever listen to that uh, he is uh, now a sort of uh, reinvented himself as a sort of cultural pundit he's often on um, shock jock uh, he's on, often on Jeremy Vine's show and he's got a, a, a show on Talk Radio too uh, and he responded to Chelsea's sacking, brutal sacking of Frank Lampard uh, last week um, with this. He said, if we didn't know before, we know now why Roman Abramovich is one of the, uh, is, is a multi-billionaire. It's because he's one of the most ruthless men on earth. Uh, he doesn't let emotion get to him. I admire that. He is single-minded in the pursuit of victory. We should put him in charge of rolling out the vaccine. And I don't know about you, but I can't see any flaws with the idea of putting one of Vladimir Putin's best mates in charge of injecting millions of Britons. Maybe we could do all the vaccine uh, vaccinations in the shadow of Salisbury Cathedral. Which Good idea. Good idea. You know, Mr. Parry used to used to ring me very often when I was the night editor of the Press Association with story tips. Ah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was the night editor of the Press Association, I think. Well, I think, well I, I'm not sure that he was that keen on on the way I went about my tenure. Um, right. <laughs> well, he will he will he will tell you at great length. Um, he will tell you that he was the man who pressed the button on the the, the flash that said uh, Princess of Wales has died. It's funny that because I spent a lot of time at the press association. Absolutely loved it, and at least three or four people have told me that they were the person that pushed the button. It's a. <laughs> It's one of the most famous um, one of the most famous moments in PA modern history, certainly, and it's a bit like the hundred club gig, you know. Yes, yes. That, to, to say that that hap- to say that that thing happened, the PA were the first with the news because they got a tip off from the foreign secretary. Um, they were out on a trip with Robin Cook at the time. That's how it happened. But to say that that w- that snap was sent at about two in the morning, I think that newsroom was pretty full. I'm telling you. I, I mean, I know that in those days there were a lot more journalists around, but. That was that was that newsroom was like it would be on a Wednesday afternoon if you were to believe all the stories you heard about the, uh, the that snap being pressed at the PA. But anyway, I'm sure it was Mike. But anyway, so um, so Mike Parry is in the Hall of Shame. Andrew Jenkins is in the Hall of Shame. Third inductee, third and final inductee this week is another of our old friends. It's Alack. It's Anne Widdicombe. Alack is in the Hall of Shame, and she has written in the um, Express. 
course. Uh, that Britain is in the grip of cumbersome, pointless bureaucracy. Yeah. Now, she, of course, was in a, the Brexit party, um, which uh, have indirectly led to the cumbersome, pointless bureaucracy that we're now seeing in Northern Ireland. But anyway, um, she's in, Britain is in the grip of cumbersome, pointless bureaucracy, she's written in her Express column this week, and she gives us an example, I'm quoting her here, the requirement to be trained in fire procedures merely to jab a row of arms. Supposing there were to be a fire and somebody died or was badly burned, the result would almost certainly be a lawsuit because the staff weren't trained in fire safety. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think Anne Widdicombe is saying here is, A, it's wrong to train people who are just vaccinating people about fire safety, and B... It is wrong that if while they're jabbing people um, with the vaccine, a fire starts in the building that they're doing it and everyone gets burned to death, it's wrong to complain about that because they and say they should have been trained in fire safety. Um, I'm not sure she's entirely thought that through. I've thought that about, to be fair, the entirety of Anne Widdicombe's political career. <laughs> But there was a really telling and brilliant moment also in this column um, because, you know, you wonder, don't you, where this this hatred of bureaucracy and cumbersome, pointless bureaucracy, where does it come from? And there's a moment where she reveals where it comes from and it ah. says, a local postmistress once refused a passport application I had signed for a friend because I had written... I certify this to be a true photograph on the back instead of I certify this is a true photograph. Ah. And that has really annoyed uh, Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> and that local postmistress, imagine living in the same village as Anne Widdicombe, that local postmistress is now my hero. So the local postmistress goes in the Hall of Fame. Anne Widdicombe is in the Hall of Shame. Well, that is... That is extraordinary, an extraordinary thing. I mean, no one likes a Jobsworth. Do you remember Jobsworth of the Week? That was a bit like Brexit, wasn't it, on, on um, That's Life? That's, was it on That's Life? Yeah, amid the, the um, mathematical dogs. And, mathematical and, dogs. And, and, and vegetable shit vegetables like Vegetables and all that penises, yeah. Yeah, that was good Sunday night TV with Esther Ranson. I enjoyed that hugely. What, have you, been, what you mentioned you've been watching... Um, you mentioned you've been watching... Wurzel Gummidge. What else have you been watching while you've had, had your feet up for three months? Three long months. Well, I've got to say, I've not. I, I've, I've actually been doing quite a lot of work. Oh yeah. Um, but over Christmas, um, it, quite pleasant. I was able to enjoy the uh, the Christmas period as much as we were all able to enjoy it. Um, so uh, Wurzel Gummidge, I thought, was the best thing that was on over Christmas. I've what about really... Mrs. Brown's boys. I've written, I didn't watch Mrs. Brown's boys. Um, um, I did see that it was on. Um, the thing that I, I, I mean, I've enjoyed various things recently. Um, the thing that I enjoyed that I had missed, um, which seemed to, I think it, it sort of came out um, in the, the middle of last year on Sky Atlantic and is now on Now TV, um, was Sharp Objects, which is, um, a, a, an eight-part series starring um, Amy Adams, 
it's really, really, uh, really, really good. It's a, a, from a book by Gillian Flynn who wrote Gone Girl. Um, and most recently, I've really enjoyed um, Back, as I mentioned at the top. I am Back, mm. but you must watch the second series of Back, um, which has got David Mitchell and Robert Webb in it from from Peep Show. It is their um, their, um, their their sort of their, the second series of their sort of third project together, isn't it? After the, the, the sort yeah. of Mitchell and Webb, which um, wasn't very good, was it? TV show. No, that wasn't very good. And who who would have known that um, that, that that would be? followed by peep show which was absolutely brilliant from start yeah. to finish and now back which is also um really good i've watched so many films um too many films to um to, to possibly um to possibly list here too but I, I as i say i have been doing a lot of writing too um which you will hopefully see the the, the fruits of those labors too um well, i can we, see we can we we're can... joined by a very special guest to round us off hopefully if if we can unmute Rachel Johnson, <laughs> she could unmute herself. I'm, I'm Rachel, here. here you are. Thank goodness. Thank goodness you are here. It's I'm an really absolute. Don't you guys. Do not worry at all. It's a pleasure to have you at any time, Rachel. You are more than welcome. Um, let's jump straight in because we are pushed for time. You are, well, tell us about Mary Berry, first of all, because you've been writing about her and you're starring on, on BBC One with her. What's that all about? Mary Berry is absolutely fabulous. I mean, I had promised myself I'd never do a show with the word celebrity in the title again. Not again. <laughs> but when I was actually asked to do three weeks cooking with Mary Berry and Angela Hartnett during lockdown, it was uh, the, the call came in during lockdown one. I literally couldn't resist it. You know, because we were there, we all were making sourdough and banana bread and Instagramming our suppers or, or our teas um and i just thought oh fuck it sorry <laughs> i said uh, i said to hell with it i don't care what people say i'm gonna do it and god i learned a lot i realized when i you know i'd never made custard or chips how could i've got to my advanced age and never make custard or chips weird you weren't having them together were you rachel because that's that's i, I mean you know, I chips would. and gravy is a thing where I'm from, but not chips and custard. I made actually quite delicious custard, but my chips were a massive fail. Ah. Um, as you would have seen from episode four, which aired on BBC One last night. And Mary Berry was very disdainful. She sort of picked one up like it was a sort of dead, dead mouse and said, it's very white, isn't it? Not crispy. How does the... How is the... the because obviously we're we're in these these strange times. So for people who've not watched it, can you explain how the, uh, the the producers have sort of formed a square around Mary Mary Berry? Because there are COVID restrictions, and you're writing in the in the paper this week about is there a is there a, a, a COVID marshal that you deal with? Well, what happened was if as soon as anybody approached anybody else, somebody would shriek meters and of course it's really really hard we were a bit like a nursery school you know if somebody's just cooked a fantastically delicious something or other like the cannoli we did last night or what it was shown last night you all just want to crowd around and eat it and so you had it was very very counterintuitive you know with food and cooking it's all about kind of being together and yet you had to spend your entire time two meters distance from 
everyone else. While Mary Berry was on her sort of Mussolini-style balcony, using yes. opera glasses to sort of see what was going on. Um, it's, it's quite incredible. And how, how do you feel that you have that you have done so far? Because <laughs> you've had your macaroni. I mean, I'm duty bound to ask you whether you've ever prepared something that you said was oven ready, but it's gone on to be sort of <laughs> half baked and not digestible. Very funny. Thank um, you. <laughs> my macaroni cheese, unlike a lot of things I could mention, was oven ready because I'd done all the spade work. I had uh, done all the preparations. I'd gone onto all the government websites and done all the negotiations well in advance as to whether it was going to be Conte or cheddar. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> what about Ed Balls? He's on there with you. How, what's Ed like? Oh, not at all competitive, as you can see. He doesn't want to win at all. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to dance again, is he? Spends his entire time dancing and making animal noises. Oh, he's I wonder better. if he was like that in number eleven. Do you think he? Do you think he's a better uh, a better cook than he was a chancellor? He's a very good cook. Don't forget. I mean, what I said in my piece for you guys: we have to blame Brexit on Ed Balls. Yes. What? Well, explain why we have to well, blame I Brexit mean, on Ed Balls. In a way, he's he's the patient zero of Brexit of the. Brexit uh, plague because he was the one who persuaded Gordon Brown who was I think in Washington DC he was back in number 11 or he was in Washington DC and Brown was back in number 11 that they had to have five tests before you could consider joining the euro and Ed Balls wrote those five tests went up to Gordon Brown who determined that Obviously, Sterling had not, we had not met those five tests, which meant that we did not join the euro, which meant that, unlike France, unlike Germany, unlike another one of the countries whose, you know, national currency was the euro, whose, uh, you know, income came in euros and taxes came in euros and all the rest of it, we could have a referendum to leave the EU because our our economy yeah. was not tangled up in the same to nearly the same extent. It wouldn't cause any sort of monetary or financial crash if we left the EU. So basically it was Ed Balls who rolled the pitch for David Cameron for the Bloomberg speech in 2013 or whatever it was that said he was going to call an in-out referendum. Another, you know, no other country, France or Germany or mm. any of Belgium could have ever called an in-out referendum because they were in the euro. Am I right? I think that is, well, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that is right. Have you mentioned this to, to Ed? No, I'm going to take it up with him when I next see him. <laughs> I think you definitely should. Uh, I think you definitely should. But I think I, I'd like to talk to Ed about that and, uh, you know, whether he's acknowledged that. I think maybe we did have a conversation about that. But if you kind of pay it backwards, that's where you get to is Ed Balls and the five tests. No Tory government was going to join the Euro, put Sterling into the Euro, but after what happened with the ERM. Mm. This is true. This is true. Um, in the New European Diary that you've, you've written for us this week, you, you mention um, 
one particular aspect of lockdown which is is really annoying you what what is that it's 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 well it's out, outdoor the ban on outdoor activity isn't it outdoor sport yeah i mean this is something that you know i would say to the government and you know who i mean as well it really pains and upsets me that people are reduced to exercising inside their houses and reduced to walking around muddy parks in as if they're a prison yard i feel that it's it's just very very punitive and unnecessary there is absolutely no evidence for transmission of coronavirus um, outside i think you know i'm not a scientist so i'm sure you could find someone who claims they got it from a swing but i don't think so I think it's just an easy win for the government to say everybody should be able to exercise exercise outdoors, play tennis, play golf, go to skate parks, all those things. And I think that given we're in the middle of an obesity and mental health crisis, it seems absolutely counterproductive to keep people inside watching Netflix and eating banana bread or watching me make macaroni cheese on television and have you have you shared this view with anyone really important that you might have access is there anybody to? i could say this to? like mary berry mary berry she's really important i think i just think it's yeah i have said it i have said we, it. we are running out of time unfortunately but I, I, no, that's all right. before i let you before we let you go and thank, thanks very much for coming on i know you've got a really tight schedule today it's two years since the whole, well, it's two years since the start of the independent group now. How do you, and then of course that turned into Change UK and, and you ran. How do you view that now and your part in it? And do you think that, will there ever be another attempt to start a, a new party uh, in the centre? Uh, that's a good question, which I haven't thought about. I did write a book um, called Rake's Progress about my doomed effort to become a your mp um what was interesting about 2019 and the run-up to 2019 the european vote and then the general election was the in the european vote the lib dems did quite well but then they were obliterated mm. no sorry i take that back the local elections the lib dems did very well which led people to believe that there wasn't a hole in the center of the donut then the pro-European parties had all fractured so much that in, even though people desperately added up the vote share of pro-European parties, the, the Brexit party still won. So I don't think you could prove that there was one middle ground party that would hoover up the, those who felt um, politically homeless. And there were so many millions of them, if you think about it, up to when you look at the Remain vote in the EU referendum, over 16 million. But those 16 million didn't seem to find their way to a centre-ground party, let alone a new one. I thought the evidence was there wasn't scope for, for a new centre-ground party. It's been an endlessly repeated experiment um, in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And it's never really taken off. And it's interesting to ask why. I think it's because we, we really are a bit like America. We've got red states and blue states. We've got a Labour Party and a Conservative Party. And it's very, it'd be very interesting to see 
if that changes. I definitely don't see it changing in the next general election. Yeah, without PR, I think it's probably a forlorn hope. Rachel, I think we're going to have to leave it there just because of the pressure of time. R- Richard? Yes, that's that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, Rachel, but an absolute pleasure. Please do come on Thank again. Thank you so much. Love, love, Thanks love so the much piece in the, Love the piece in the paper. Keep up the Thank good work. You. And keep, okay, keep, cheers. Keep making those chips. You can improve on those. <laughs> fry, them higher, fry them harder, faster. That's it, that's it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time and great to talk to you. Thanks, Rachel. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to, please go out and buy the printed product. Do it now. It's available in all good bookshops. Follow me on Twitter, at Porrit, P-O-R-R-I-T-T. Follow him on Twitter. At Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Follow the New European, at the New European. Excellent. Until next week, Mr. Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.